This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, there are many key components to being a good leader these days, but one of the more unique ways to link those ingredients together comes in from Wharton's Christopher Maxwell. The book he has put together is called Lead Like a Guide, which looks at the leadership qualities that mountain and hiking guides have when they're escorting people on tours and in various parts of the world. Christopher is a senior fellow at the Center for Leadership and Change Management here at the Wharton School, and he is joining us here in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Nice to meet you. Very happy to be here. Thanks, Thank you. Dan. I, I guess let's start with the backstory because it, it's unique to correlate. I think for a lot of people, they understand that guides have to have leadership qualities, but to correlate it with the business aspects. Yeah, um, this began in somewhere around 2004, 2005, when Mike Yusim from the Center for Leadership and Change here gave me a little funding to go out to one of the most remarkable places in the country, and that's Jackson Hole, Wyoming, a beautiful, beautiful place with wonderful mountains and a very, very expert group of guides. And I climbed with them four or five times and met the president of Exum Mountain Guides who said, I can introduce you to a bunch of the guides that you can interview. Yeah. And so I had a wonderful week. In fact, we had a ranch out there for Christmas week. Oh, that's <clears throat> and, not bad. <laughs> no, not bad. At the foot of the Grand Teton. And I, I invited eight guides to come in one or two every evening and have dinner with us and just have a chat. And I basically asked them the same question, why do you guide? And from it, I had a tape, of course, and I taped every interview. And then reading through all the transcripts, I realized there were about six things that they all seemed to demonstrate. And, and I hadn't coordinated any of this with any of them. Right. But as it turned out, they had what I called leadership strengths. And these leadership strengths really were not just good and effective in the mountains, they seem to apply to business, too. Hmm. So I went from there, and I did uh, trips in Nepal with a, a, a wonderful guide, Ang Jangbu Sherpa, um, and then went to Iceland, to Quebec, to Mexico, to uh, Patagonia, um, and Peru, and interviewed more guides on these trips. So I ended up doing 20 expeditions with guides around the world wow. in seven countries. And from my notes and my thoughts... I realized that they all sort of have this, this same set of leadership strengths. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could apply those strengths in another environment? And, of course, for me and, and others here, that environment is business. So let me, let me just tell you what I found. Yeah. The guides had the following strengths. First, they were socially intelligent. You can imagine to get someone to the top of a peak, the guide really has to be tuned into that person very quickly, understand their client, learn a little bit about them, and especially build a relationship that's not going to crumble. Uh, you know, you're on the tough conditions, bad weather, high yeah. peaks. You've got to be socially intelligent and get this person to work with you. So social intelligence was the first thing. The second was they were adaptable. Every guide was flexible in the way they led. Sometimes they could just, you know, have a nice chat and a conversation with you. Other times it was don't step to the left, don't step to the right, or you're going to die. Right. right. Uh, so they were very flexible in the way they led. And they were, you know, they had this power of being both affiliative, they were friendly and nice, and yet they could be quite demanding when they needed to be. 
And, and again, that's a quality that a business leader needs, to be able to be flexible and have different leadership styles. But are there, are there times where, where leaders aren't – well, I would think there are many times where leaders aren't flexible enough, and then obviously it is an impact, a negative impact on, on the company, the corporation, and obviously the people that they work with. Oh, there's no question. In fact, um, Daniel Goleman, uh, I'm sure most, most of you listeners yeah. know about Dan. Yeah. He has six leadership styles. Let me just run them off. Affiliative, meaning friendly – authoritative, meaning follow me. I'm the kind of guy you want to follow. Um, democratic, I'm going to take your input. Uh, coaching. Yeah. And then pace setting and coercive. Now, you might think pace setting would be actually not a bad thing. Sure. You know, yeah. Lyndon Johnson used to come to work at 5 a.m. in the morning. He'd run up the Capitol steps. <laughs> He'd be in the Capitol all day. He'd finally get home at midnight. How do you think his staff felt after a while? Oh, yeah. They couldn't yeah. keep up, and yeah. they would leave. They'd get frustrated. So pace setting works when you need to set the pace, but it doesn't work on a long-term long basis. And the same with being coercive. There are times on the mountain when a guide would have to say, mm -hmm. do this, and, and if you don't do what I tell you, you're going to have a problem. But if you're like that all the time, it's not going to work. So guides have learned to be flexible and use the right style at the right time. And I think that's one of the keys that business people need to learn. And they can simply go and read Dan's uh, great article in the Harvard Business Review, and it'll give them a really great list of these are the six styles. These four work to build an organizational style. These two will destroy it. I want to go back to social intelligence for a second because mm. as I was going through that, I, a lot of the uh, the the keys that you're going to be talking about, the ones that you have and the ones we will in a little bit, the social intelligence one was one I had to think about for a little while because I think in the course of a, of a day of business here when we're doing the show, we kind of go about our nature and we kind of assume things that happen. We don't necessarily make that correlation all the time that you have to have that connection on so many different levels. Well, you know, we often get it confused, I think, with emotional intelligence, right. which is I'm self-aware and I'm aware of others. Right. I have antenna that can pick up your emotions and I can feel empathy. Right. Um, so I think most people are pretty well in tune with emotional intelligence. I think social intelligence just takes it a step further. It's about relationships. It's about building positive relationships. It's about making relationships that work yeah. based on trust and intimacy. So it's just a little different. Um, and the difference, you know, it might be minor, but I think there's enough that I, I chose not to think of it as emotional intelligence, given that I think most people know enough about emotional intelligence. Uh, so, social intelligence is just that that extra step of I want to form a relationship that really works and I'm going to manage that relationship. That seems to be something that more companies are doing these days. And, and I say that when you think about having the flexibility to work from home or work from the office, time off, you know, because if you're taking care of a sick loved yeah. one or, or birth. And, and we've had that to a degree, but maybe it's just it's developed quite a bit more in the last let's say, 10 to 20 years than it was back when, back when you know, I was first getting started working yeah, 30 and I years think, ago. I think you're also dealing with, you know, so many different cultures in the workplace now, yeah. men, women, other cultures. It, it really requires a manager to be socially intelligent and really be thoughtful about do, what kind of relationship do I want to build and how do I maintain it? Uh, empowering uh, others, which is, I think it's, when you, when you say those two words, uh, people understand that it's a part, obviously, in what these guides do. No question yeah. about it. When you're talking about 
them being somebody that has done this for such a long time, taking people and being in control of people that really haven't in many cases. But when you think about it with the office, that's something that's almost a, a I think a core need of a company these days to be able to empower others to get the most out of themselves. I, I think so too. You know, guides, of course, empower their clients to reach a summit that they never thought they would be able to reach. Yeah. And so it's a particular skill of guides, and it definitely applies in business. Um, you know, the, the empowerment thing might sound old. I mean, we've talked about sure. empowerment for years yeah. and years and years. Um, some authors say empowerment is really about removing obstacles in your way, and that's pretty much what a guide would do. A guide would help you manage the weather, manage the route, and get to the summit and empower you. I have a, a friend of, a, uh, of mine who is a guide, and he says, my job is not uh, to give you a hand up from the summit. My job is to provide the shoulders for you to stand on, yeah. but it's not my job to pull you up. And I like that very much. I think in business, you know, you need to tell people, I'm here to remove the roadblocks that are in, that are in your way, but you need to succeed. And it's my job to help you in any way I can, but I can't do it for you. That's why you're needed here. And then to a degree, that becomes the expectation of the people that are in that troop on, on that tour, you know, the people that the guide are taking care of, but then also the employees in a company, they have that expectation of, of kind of attaining that empowerment. That's right. And there's a great study just done, I think it was in 2014, by Natalia Lorenkova. Um, and she did a study of 10 simulation rounds. So you have 10 rounds of this game they would play. Right. And uh, they trained some of the team leaders to lead in a directive way. And they trained some of the team leaders to lean in an empowering way. So yeah. some told people what to do and gave them the clear guidelines. Others sort of stepped back a little and allowed their teams to think and to, to, to sort of mull it over and, and actually to meet and sort of take the time to figure it out. And what she found is a great study. I mean, it really shows the difference between empowering and directing. The directed teams got off to a very fast start. Right. Because they had the the sort of the this is what you do and this is how you do it, but they plateaued pretty quickly. Right. The empowered team took much longer to get going, maybe two or three or four rounds yeah. of thinking, talking, but they outstripped the directed team. And I think if people just look at that simple study, it's a great, great demonstration of the, the real power of being empowered rather than told what to do. This is Knowledge of Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking with uh, Wharton's Christopher Maxwell, who's the author of the book uh, Lead Like a Guide uh, here on Sirius XM 111. Uh, you talk uh, also one of the keys is about trust building. Yep. And uh, I don't think there's much doubt that, that when you're in some of these situations with guides and climbing up mountains or, you know, going through trails, the guide has to have the trust of the people that he's taking around. I, I mean, it's it's an absolute necessity, as, as you kind of said earlier, or else it could be an injury or it could be a fatality, depending on where you are. Well, I, th I call the guide the trust builder, because not only do you build trust in the guide, but you also build trust in yourself and usually yeah. there are team members. So yeah. when you climb on a rope, often the guide would go first and then there'd be four or five team members. Now the guide's gone up and he's around the corner. You can't see the guide. I now am climbing and I have someone behind me. 
which means I have to go up 120 feet, get on a ledge, and yeah. now I'm responsible for the person coming behind me. So not only do I have to build trust in myself and my feet, I also have to earn the trust of the person who's actually going to say to me, Chris, I am now climbing. My life is in your hands. So building trust is very important. There's a great English sociologist, Anthony Giddens, mm -hmm. and he came up with this just a beautiful little statement. Trust is the link between faith and confidence. <laughs> you want people to have faith in their feet and faith in their capacity to climb and yeah. faith in their guide. But faith in a way is sort of like hope. You know, I hope I can climb. I <laughs> right. hope my guide's a good one. Right. What you really want is confidence. And trust is that link between just faith and real confidence. If you have that link between faith and confidence, you have trust. And that's where guides really shine. They shine at building trust. And you're going to trust me, the guide, but you're going to trust yourself. Yeah. And your teammates are going to trust you. It's a it's a it's a thing that I've seen I've seen a guide at at 13 or 14,000 feet turn to a first time climber who is uh, on a ledge about the you know the width of this table maybe 3 or 4 feet and he'll calmly say to this this young lady in fact it was a nursing student at Penn her name was Stephanie Buswell and he'd say to Stephanie Stephanie I want you to put your back to the ledge and I, I want you to step off the ledge. I want you to oh, step geez. backwards, and oh, she's attached by a rope, yeah. and she's now going to do a 120-foot rappel for the first time in her life. And he just calmly says, Stephanie, just take a step back and step off into the thin air. This is what trust means. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting that that's one of the, 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 the concepts, because if you think about it, it, that has almost become an industry here in the United States, and I'm sure in other places around the world, that, that team building, that trust building, yep. which, which so many companies do. And, and obviously, I, well, for those people who remember the, the Super Bowl this past year, the Atlanta Falcons are well known. They did a, a big team building effort that they say help them trust each other yeah. and obviously help them gain to the Super Bowl. So this is a, a very big industry right now. Yeah, it is. In fact, when you go to climb in, in Jackson Hole, some of the most beautiful mountains anywhere, you have to pass a two-day climbing school. Day one, you have to pass, and day two, you have to pass. If you don't pass, you don't go up. Right. So, you know, they, they, they do this because they know that you need time to understand how your feet work on the rock, how to get a handhold, how to tie the knots. They know that it's going to take a couple of days to build that trust. Yeah. And in business, I think if a manager takes the time to move from faith to confidence and show people that I can build trust in you and, and you can have trust in yourself and the teammates that you work with every day, we're all going to be better off. So it really does take an investment in these exercises, I think, are a big help. Christopher Maxwell, our guest. The book is uh, Lead Like a Guide. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Uh, you also talk about uh, the fact that the people themselves need to be aware uh, of the situations around them. You call it risk-aware. Uh, go into that a little bit, please. Well, yeah, guides are risk-aware, that's for sure. So they're aware of thunderstorms and, and bad weather rockfall, they're aware all the time, and yeah. their senses are just always switched on, but they're not risk-averse. 
Okay. I mean, when you think about this, why would I try and get to the top of this ridiculous mountain if if I were averse to risk? Yeah. You wouldn't do it. So guides have this wonderful balance between constantly risk aware, but they're not risk averse. So they will they will take clients in places that are risky. And that's why you need trust. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't um, face risk, you're not going to need trust. So trust is important out in the mountains. But they're they're very very careful with this line between being aware and not being averse to risk. And and you know they they are also finely tuned on. Dan, this is just not your day. Yeah. You know, and they're they're not afraid to say to somebody. You know, you can come back tomorrow. The mountain will still be here next sure. year. This is not a good day for you, and, and we're just not going to go any further. So they know this balance, and I think the same applies in business. You're going to start a new enterprise. You're going to start a new venture. You can't be risk-averse. Right, yeah. You have to have some willingness to take the risk, but you must be risk-aware that, for instance, in, when you climb the mountain – um, summit fever kicks in. The only thing I want to do is get to sure. the top. And yeah. people rush to the top yep. and then get trapped by a storm. Yeah. What they should have been was risk-aware, not suffering from summit fever. If they would have been risk-aware, they would have known that at a certain point it was wise to turn around. You know, So this, this sort of dividing line between risk-aware and risk-averse is something that guides are really schooled in, and they can teach wonderful lessons to people who go with them. And better to, you know, be a little bit more reserved and, and protective than rather than pushing the envelope in many of these cases. That's right, because there's a great study in the British Medical Journal about um, those who climb Mount Everest, and as it turns out, above a certain point, let's say 26,000 feet, you're now in the death zone. Yeah. The deaths aren't coming on the way up. The deaths are coming on the way huh. down because they've got to the top. They got trapped in a storm or they're exhausted and they're in no condition to come down. Right. So most of something like 86 percent, I forget the exact number, but a high uh, proportion of the deaths on a major summit are on the descent, not on the way up. And it's a wise guide. And the guides, you know, have made mistakes, yeah. especially on Everest. Um, but the wise guide says... You know, I'm looking at everything, and my, my risk sensors are up, and this just is, is – I know you want to get to the summit. I know it costs you $60,000 to be here, yeah. but this is not a good day. And, and that leads to the last one, which is looking at the big picture. Yeah. I mean, if – and again, whether it's climbing a mountain uh, or whatever it may be business-wise – you do have to have that perspective. You do need to kind of take in everything that is kind of around you and not be the kind of the bull in the china shop. Well, and, and as you well know, you know, the big picture is contrasted to we follow trends. And, and all of us watch CNN. We read the paper. We're reacting all day long to small events. Yeah. And, and sometimes we miss the big picture. Um, so sometimes – you know, uh, well, here's a great thing from uh, Ronald Heifetz at uh, Harvard Kennedy School says, you've got to get on the balcony. You've got to get off the dance floor where you can't see anything developing. All you can see is a person next to you. Mm -hmm. You can't see the pattern on the floor. If you get up on the balcony and look down, now you have the big picture. And I think guides are really expert at developing the big picture. <clears throat> They're also great at saying it's about the journey. You know, it's not just about – the summit is important and everybody wants to get to the summit. Yeah. But the guides seeing the big picture say, 
you have to learn also to enjoy the journey, and the journey is really why we're here. This is where the lessons are. I mean, there aren't many lessons to be learned on a summit. The lessons are on the way up and on the way down, and and sort of having that appreciation for the big picture is something that many of us, I think, in life and in business, we sort of get lost in the details, lost in the events, lost in the sort of the crush of information, and maybe we don't take enough time to get up on the balcony. I've heard at times that that leadership is viewed in many cases as an inherited trait, you know, that people have it in them. With these guides. Do they, do they have it? Did they always have it in them? You know, I think it's still a learned art. Okay. I think guides, you know, Exum, is, Exum Mountain Guides is probably the premier guide service in the country. And they say, um, if you're a really great guide, don't apply. We'll find you. Huh. You know, because it takes years and years and years of practice, climbing, taking clients up smaller peaks. By the time your reputation gets to the point that Exum Mountain Guides is interested in you, you've probably fully developed yeah. your skills. So, you know, I think leadership is definitely something that is learned, and it's learned by guides who've climbed, you know, over and over and over. I, I know guides who've climbed the Grand Teton four or 500 times. I've climbed it twice. No, five times I've climbed it. Can you imagine climbing it 500 oh, yeah. times? Yeah. Well, just think of the skills that you develop along the way. I mean, it's just phenomenal that, that they would learn over time all these different clients, all these different weather patterns, all yeah. these different routes. It's definitely a learned art. But there are, there are certain pieces to that. I mean, especially when you've done the Grand Teton so many times that – you still can't take it for granted because things change. Even on a mountain, things right. change over the course of time. That's right. So you have to have the radar, the senses on all the time. That's why I think these six, these six uh, leadership strengths, if you will, you know, having the big picture, understanding risk, um, helping other people get to the top, being flexible in your leadership style. When you put them all together, right. you have a guide. Now, here's my proposal. What would it be like to work for a person like this? Yeah. To work for someone who acts like a guide rather than just <clears throat> a manager or the font of all knowledge or the person that will come in and, you know, tell you how. How about a guide as a manager, someone who you can go to who will give you the strength and the empowerment to do what you need to do and is there for safety? Can I'll back you up. Right. I'll, I'll, I won't let you fall off the precipice. You know, but you must you must solve this problem yourself. So how do you think we get more leaders to be like that? Um, it's, you know, obviously it's going <laughs> to, they should all read the book. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the simplest. By the way, answer. the book is Lead Like a Guide, by the way, the if we didn't mention that. The simplest answer. Um, you know, I think, I think we get to that point by understanding more and more about ourselves yeah. and understanding more about even our own emotional and social intelligence. How do I react to other people? Can I control my 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 temper, my anxiety? Yeah. My am I empathetic with other people? These are things that you know you learn not quickly, but you often learn by making mistakes, by working your way up through an organization, um, by observing managers who are good and not so good, yeah. and by learning about a risk that we might take by learning that I was too focused on the events and I didn't see the big picture. These are things that you sort of learn by doing. So I don't think there's any quick answer to it. But I do think that, you know, I mean, I know the management literature fairly well. Guiding is not a big topic. 
Yeah. Uh, people don't talk about managers as guides yeah. um, as much as they do in a much more sort of um, authoritarian way or, you know, sort of, in a managerial way, if you like. Yeah. Um, and, and I would uh, – I think working in a in an environment where people are guiding you toward your own personal summit in work and in life is the ultimate, and and I think that it's something that's probably developing over time. Um, but it's 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 going to take a little work. The book again is "Lead Like a Guide." Christopher Maxwell of the the Wharton School senior fellow here uh, joining us in the studio. Great having you here. Thank you very much for giving us some time today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Dan. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.